Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast, the podcast where we talk all things aero modeling. My name is Andrew Sill. I'm the host of this wonderful podcast. And thanks again for joining me. Again, thanks to all those people that have been sending me messages saying that they're enjoying the podcast. I love to hear that. And it spurs me on to keep on going. So another uh, jam-packed episode, three segments coming your way, including a great guest interview with Greg Lepp, a scale guy. Well, he's a scale guy, he's a heli guy, he's an aerobatic guy, he's a bit of everything, but Greg Lepp, a bit of a name, is quite well known down here in Victoria, Australia. So let's take a look at what's been happening around the traps. As per usual, we are in the midst of this COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic and the news is few and far between as far as what's been happening out there. Uh, I was Today I actually was chatting with a guy online who's going to be coming up in an upcoming episode of the Flat Out RC podcast. I won't give away his name, but he's a big name and he's looking forward to getting on, on the podcast, but uh, he was saying how there's just hardly any events happening. So there's not much event news happening um, at the time of recording this. We haven't heard whether the Shepherd and Mammoth scale fly-in is happening or not. They were going to have a meeting. Uh, the committee was going to meet, so I'm not sure whether that big event is going on or not. The IMAC, we had uh, Michael Andrusik on not long ago, and he they've cancelled the IMAC Nationals. So I, I can't see any events happening. So in the absence of any news, I'm going to continue in supporting some of the hobby businesses here in Australia that keep on doing a great job in supporting us. And this week's feature shop is none other than Desert Aircraft Australia. And what a great bunch of guys these guys are, Ian and Mark, up there. Now, DA's been around for a long time. Ian Howard started DA. He had a love for flying large-scale aircraft, especially aerobatics, and um, this goes back many, many years. And basically what Desert Aircraft Australia represent is the best quality gear that you can get. So, and especially for the aerobatic sort of fraternity, they do have uh, some jets and some scale aircraft, but uh, I'll talk a bit about that after. But they offer some of the best brands going around in the marketplace, as I said, especially into aerobatics. So what brands do they have? They are the distributor for Extreme Flight. They are the distributor for AJ Aircraft. They're the distributor for Pilot RC. You're talking about three of the best Balsa aircraft manufacturers, aerobatic aircraft manufacturers in the world. Uh, they've got um, Compaf, so calf models. Uh, they've got their aerobatic range. They can get jets, scale planes, you name it. They can get it. So you're talking about top-end aerobatic planes here from the 48-inch size right up to three meter wingspan aerobatic aerocraft. Now, anybody that is an avid aerobat, you already know about DA Australia. So this is really going out to people that may not be aware of what they have to offer. So again, Extreme Flight, Pilot RC, AJ Aircraft, three great brands, all sorts of edges, excels, yaks, you name it, all the aerobatic planes are, are represented there. Lasers is a big one as well. But not only do they have the kits, they've also got the motors. Now, Desert Aircraft Australia, you, as the name suggests, they are the distributor for Desert Aircraft uh, gas motors out of the US. Now, what's interesting is that Ian Howard, the owner, actually used to have an electronics business, sold that, 
started up DA, DA Australia. But during that time, he got to know the founder of Desert Aircraft and said that he could make the ignition modules. So Desert Aircraft Australia actually makes the ignition modules for Desert Aircraft Motors. Now, if you read, I think it was the last issue of Flat Out RC, you'd know that. If you didn't, well, now you do. Desert Aircraft Australia make the ignition modules. They also design them. and designs a lot of them and manufactures them and sends them uh, to the US or wherever they need to go. So uh, good type there with DA Australia. So Desert Aircraft engines, so not only do they sell them, but they also support them, service them, that kind of stuff. So I've always been a big believer, if you're going to buy a gas motor, buy a gas motor that is locally supported. And that's what you're going to get from DA Australia. Uh, they also are the distributor for Powerbox products, so um, distribution boards, uh, spark switches, you name it, the entire range of Powerbox gear they have. They bring in Falcon props, they've got Mejlik props, they've got True Turn spinners. Um, uh, they also carry a lot of spare parts for their um, for their planes, especially uh, things like landing gear and wheel spats and all that kind of stuff. But generally they've got full range of radio gear, so they resell, uh, you know, Spectrum Futaba, those kind of things. Um, servos you can get from them as well for all their things. But everything that they sell represents quality. They, they brought in Seacraft gear for bling bling, uh, you know, stuff. Uh, they used to bring in SWM arms. I don't know where SWM are. I heard on the grapevine that they might not be in business anymore, but I stand to be corrected. They've got the uh, extreme flight range of um, electric motors, uh, Castle Creation speed controllers, so the X Power range of um, of motors they have. They also offer some dual sky, so a lot of that extreme flight stuff, the accessories and whatever they they do have as well. Now, why would do I buy from DA? I buy from DA for a couple of reasons. If the, Ian and Mark give you advice, take it because they know their stuff. They've been doing this for so long that they know what works. They are representing the upper echelons of the hobby as far as their quality. So if you're looking for cheap price kind of no frills gear, you're not going to go to DA. DA is the place to go when you want quality stuff with quality advice. The stuff that works, you go to DA. You want a good carbon prop, you go to Falcon. You go to Falcon. You get Falcon from DA. So I'm a big supporter of them. They've always been a big supporter of Flat Out RC, but I was, you know, I was a big supporter of them prior to Flat Out RC days as well. And uh, they have been a, a pretty much a go-to. And they've been a go-to because they've got the gear that I want. When I build an aerobatic aircraft, especially a large-scale one, and, I, and I'm and i spending a bit of money, I don't mind. Um, I always want to make sure that I buy something that's quality and, and reliable. And so I know that when I go to DA and I buy something, that it is going to be that. So a big shout out to Desert Aircraft Australia. You know, they, they do ship uh, around Australia. Website is www.desertaircraft.com.au. That's desertaircraft.com.au. Otherwise known as DA Australia. Give Ian and Mark a call. Mark's always slaving away answering the phones. Um, ask them for advice. Listen to what they say and then go and purchase it. So great job, DA Australia. We love you. Uh, everybody loves you. Never heard a bad word mentioned about them so please support desert aircraft australia i'll always say this every week but it's true this is the favorite part of the podcast so it's not just me talking to a microphone and we have a special guest and this week's guest is greg lepp now greg 
uh, started in the hobby many years ago and is known for a number of different things. He's known as being a great scale competitor, a great helicopter competitor. Uh, he was president of the VMAA and involved with the uh, the VMAA, the AAA chapter down here in Victoria for many, many years and helped out in organizing national competitions and things like that. But uh, also known as a, as a great builder um, and competed in the last scale world championships flying his Bristol uh, that he built himself and continually works on. So Greg's a bit of an all-rounder. He flies everything from jets to helis, you name it. So please enjoy this chat with Greg Lepp. Greg Lepp, thanks for joining me. No problems, Andrew. Well, Greg, you are a well-known aero modeler down here in Victoria, but where did your journey in this hobby begin? Oh, well, Andrew, I, I think like a lot of other um, a lot of other kids, I started flying control line. Um, I flew um, basic control line models. That's how I learned to fly. And um, I, I went to live in England for quite a number of years. Uh, I left here when I was about 10. And um, I flew control line combat over in England and um, got quite proficient at that. And um, that's where the journey started. Did the, did the whole control line thing start for you because you saw other people doing it and down at the local school ground or, or how did that how did you first find out about it? Uh, I, I think my, my father was interested in it. Um, Dad had had a bit of a crack at it, wasn't real good, and I think I showed a bit of an interest and I think I just followed what Dad was doing and um, he sort of took me along on the journey with it. And um, Dad did a lot of the building and stuff. Um, he built the control line models. And, um, he, you know, we were a good team back then. Yeah. Now, and the so control line combat, there'd be a lot of dancing around in a circle, wouldn't there? Like, how does it oh, actually work? Yeah, a lot of dancing around, a lot of twisted lines, a lot of bent aeroplanes. Um, I, I remember having... I can't remember how many, but multiple, multiple models to take out each weekend. And, um, yeah, we'd crash quite a few of them. Yeah. And then, so where did you get into radio control? Uh, so it was, I was probably in my 40s. Um, my kids had grown up a little bit. I've got two girls. And um, I was looking for something a bit more. And um, I went out and joined the Melbourne Club, which was out at Wesburn. And... Um, that's where my radio control started. That was about 1996, I think. And uh, it's just continued from there. And what what was what what plane got you back in back in 96? Uh, it was a, I can't remember the name of it, but it was a scratch-built trainer um, with a, a Enya 46 in it and JR radio. So fairly basic four-channel JR radio. Um, and... Yeah, it was um, fairly basic, but it was a good flying machine. Yeah, now you've of course you've you've stuck in there since since those days, and you've I probably owned many many models. Um, but one of the things you also got into was helicopter flying as well. So you are a bit of an all rounder. When did the helicopters come into your into your flying scene? Uh, well, it was a little bit interesting. I um I was on the VMAA and I was assisting with one of the nationals, and we were. We were lacking a bit in some helicopter um, pilots, so I'd, I'd sort of dabbled a little bit in it. So I decided to enter in novice in the um, in the nationals, and um, 
I entered and I didn't come last. Um, I certainly came nowhere near the top. And it, although it's not my major interest in aero modelling, I, I really do enjoy my helis. And to this day, I still fly in advanced um, at the um, at any competitions we have around Australia. Yeah. So, at what point in time, though, in your in, did did you get into helis? Was it in the two thousands when the, sort of the heli boom started, or was it later? No, it was it was in the two thousands. Um, it was two thousand and nine. I actually was my first ever competition. Um, there was a lot of people flying helis. I, I remember the first competitions in in novice. We'd have fifteen to twenty people in a in a class. That's crazy. Um, we don't get anywhere ne- near that now. But it, yeah, it was at the boom of the helis, and it was at the start of when um, um, the Align helicopter came out, which revolutionised heli flying in, um, yeah. pretty much worldwide. They were they were cheap. They were affordable. And they were very reliable. Yeah, no, I got a, uh, I got into helis in two. Th- actually, coming back to the hobby, I got in it f- via helis, and so I bought in two thousand seven. My son was just born. I bought an online T Rex four fifty, and I built that. But I didn't actually touch it for about four years, five years, and then I came back to it and flew it. And um, but I I practiced a lot on the simulator. Did you get on the simulator to learn how to fly helis? Uh, that that was the only way I actually learned how to fly the helis. Yeah, was on the simulator. It's just too hard. Yeah. The helicopters play with your brain, but the uh, so now when it comes to your flying, are you are you still splitting your time between the two? But obviously, I think you, I see you flying fixed wing more than you do helis. But how often are you getting the heli out nowadays? Um, I, I pretty much um, whenever I go fixed wing flying, I, there's always a heli in the car. And I'll have a always have a bit of a scooter around. I, um, um, I've got a number of seven hundred size helis, so um, always put one in there and um, get it out. And and it it breaks up, not the monotony, but it, it it's another string to the bow. And it really, I think, it really does help you fix wing flying. Nowadays, you're known as a, a top class scale competitor. What led you into that scale path starting from you know, your time in 1996 from the trainer? At what point did you start moving down that, that scale route? Um, yeah, good question. Um, I, I I think I, I was around a lot of people that were building at the stage. You know, I was in that area where if you wanted a model, you had to build it. And uh, the people I was around were not building fantastic big scale models, but they were always building a scale model. And I think um, that just instilled me, you know, to that you'd, you'd build a, not a sport model, but um, a Piper Cub or you'd build a, um, a Camel or you'd build something like that. And I think that's where it all started from. Um, and then I, um, I went out a few times and I went to Shepparton and I saw what was going on at Shepherd, and I think that that's just where the passion started. Yeah, and so what was uh, uh, what were some of the planes that you built over the time? Oh, I've had, I've had oh, I've had lots of things. I've had lots of Piper Cubs. Um, I've had um, um, camels. Um, I've got a P forty seven sitting there at the moment. Um, I can't remember them all. But there's been lots of things, um, Harvard's, um, yeah, there's 
pretty much a bit of a mixture of everything, really. Well, one of the planes that we did profile in the Flat Out RC magazine was your uh, Bristol, and uh, that's a, a, a one of your main competition models nowadays that you competed in the last World Champs. And uh, tell us a bit about that plane and how that plane came about. Sure. So um, way back in uh, probably 2000, um, my father wanted to build um, a, a nice big scale model. So Dad and I set about building the Bristol. And um, so we we built the Bristol. I think we flew it in about 2004 and something like that. Um, it had a Zenoa 38 in it. And it, like it, it flew all right, but... Um, we didn't know a lot about scale back then and um, sort of like I sort of campaigned it a few times but it wasn't until recently where I got it back out again and uh, got flying with it and realized um, a lot of the, um, the a lot of the shapes and everything were quite wrong so I rebuilt the fuselage and uh, rebuilt all the, the tail feathers and I've just recently finished rebuilding the wings to get the shapes better so it's sort of just evolved over time. And obviously it's, um, it's had a, a different paint scheme. It, it used to be silver, um, but I've done it on, uh, modeled it off the one at Shuttleworth and um, it's, it just keeps evolving. And even to this day, I'm still doing little bits and pieces to it just to try and get it that little bit better. Yeah. Do you think you'll ever, do you think you'll ever perfect the model? Uh, I don't think you ever can. I think it's just um, you always see things that are not quite right and um, you just move to sort of fix those things up and, like, the extra points you get are not much, but it's all extra to go to sort of making a winning model. Yeah, it's funny how much time you – like, a lot of the scale competitors amaze me how they don't mind spending the time to almost pull apart their models to get that very, very small incremental improvement in – in the look of their planes for, for competition uh, points, which is just amazing. Now, uh, with your scale competition, of course, you ended up competing at the last scale world champs in uh, Switzerland. How did that go for you? So, um, yeah, I, like, I, it was an interesting exercise to get there, actually. I'd uh, been team manager for the scale team for the previous two world champs, and uh it, it sort of gave me a good understanding of what happens at a world champs. And so I cam- campaigned the Bristol um, and, you know, I put a lot of, lot of practice in. I, I think um, the last month before I packed the model up, I put nearly a hundred flights in on it. Um, I was getting out twice a week and um, it was, um, it was really good um, getting over there. Um, just to um, watch other world-class pilots fly. Uh, it was it was an interesting exercise and, yeah, it, it all worked out really good in the end. I got seventh in the end. Um, there's a, still a fair bit of work to do to the model, to bring the model up to scratch, but, yeah, I was pretty happy with how I went. Are you going to make it to the next one, do you think? Uh, well, who knows the way um, COVID's going. Um, it's... The next one's in Norway next year. Um, it was cancelled for this year or postponed. So at the moment, I'm looking to go to Norway, but uh, let's wait and see what happens. 
Now, besides the uh, the Bristol that you're working on, are there any other models that you're currently on your bench that you're uh, playing around with? Um, yep. Yeah, so I've um, I've got a P47. It's uh, um, loosely based on a, a top flight one. Um, just about finished that. I'm just working on a bit of the cowling, and um, I'll be ready to start flying that very shortly. Um, that's um, done up in a camouflage colour, so and done in British colours, so that it's quite different. And I'm um, just in sort of my COVID ISO. I'm just building a Fokker D7, just to have a bit of a play around with. So I've got a um, OS 44 stroke to go in that. So I've got a couple of things on the building board. Are they for SCAR competition or just for fun? Um, a, a little bit of both. Um, they're they're all scale, so they they can fall in scale, but um, more just for fun and. Um, I just like flying scale models around. Yeah. Now, what's the? Uh, have you got any models that are on your bucket list to uh, build at some stage? Oh, there's there's heaps of them. Um, a Lavochkin LA6, I'd love to build. Um, it, there's a, there's quite a few things. Um, I'm quite interested in jets. Um, I've got a um, a MiG-15 that I'm refurbishing at the moment. Another one. So um, I've got a Compaf MiG-15. And um, I wouldn't mind doing a Mackie MB three two six, the old roulettes one. That'd be nice. That's um, that that's one of the bucket list things. Um, there's there's a few around that you can copy off and stuff. So, yeah, it's um, always have things on the bucket list whether you get to them or not. It's another matter. That's true. Now, just on the jet thing, because I find it fascinating how popular jets have been have become. I've got one ready to go waiting for this COVID thing to get over and done with so I can go out and fly it. But what led you into jets? Uh, I'm not really sure. Probably my association with Dave Law and his, uh, his like for jets. I think um, I've been out with him a few times and I, I just, uh, I just loved flying them. And uh, I, I decided to just to get a jet trainer and it took a little while for me to get my head, head around it, but, in the end, it was it was really good. I really enjoy it. What was the challenges that you had to, that you found when it came to moving to across to flying a jet? Uh, they do do fly a little bit differently. They're pushed along. There's no uh, there's no thrust issues. Um, you know, they've got almost unlimited power, um, and th- there's no braking on landing. You don't have that big prop to help you slow down. So. You know, a couple of little challenges, but there's there's nothing very much. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there flying jets and um, a lot of accomplished flyers and doing really well at it. Yeah, no, it's just amazing. Even worldwide, there's just so many people that are now looking at getting turbines or bought turbines and flying them. And, and what it's fun, what's funny about it is it's not a cheap exercise to get into turbine jets, but the avid modelers don't mind spending the many thousands to get up and running. So I met a guy in China who worked for um, his family owns GP Motors, great power motors in Taiwan. And he was telling me how there's no money in the hobby for manufacturers except for Mr. King Tech. He's driving a brand new Mercedes. He can only afford a secondhand <laughs> one. So they're right in that sort of that jet boom, um, which is uh, sure, you know, good yeah. on them. Well done, I reckon. And if you haven't uh, got into jets, just you know, there's a lot of people that poo-poo jets. But you just wait. You'll end up owning a jet because I think it's uh, one of the things you said is that you know you, it was really David Law that uh, got you into the jet thing and hanging around him. 
And because it's such a social thing, what we do, we go to flying clubs and we hang out with other people and we see aeroplanes and we fall in love with the look of them. And then I got a jet because I want to go to jet meets. I went to a jet event and I thought, this is cool. I want to go and fly to a full-size airport and land on the asphalt and all that kind of stuff. But the only way to do it is to actually go and buy a jet. So that's what I've yeah, done. that's right. When I got a jet. And I think I think in, in these days, um, I think turbines have, have become a lot more affordable. I think they're... They're very, very reliable, and they're a lot more affordable than they used to be. And you know, the prices come down, and the the quality's gone up, and you know, it, it's just um, a lot, a lot easier to get into them now. Well, I think that that goes for the whole hobby. That I remember as a kid in the eighties, looking at Airborne magazine and other magazines, and seeing the prices, going, "Oh, I can never afford that." Nowadays. Um, you know, I remember a computer radio used to cost a fortune back then, and now you can get a really good radio for not much and uh, get into the hobby. So there's actually less barriers to get into the hobby from a, a cost perspective than what there used to be. But I think there's other barriers that are come into place as a result of society and whatever that's probably getting putting a lot of people off. But you, your involvement in the hobby wasn't just around the flying because you ended up getting involved with the um, the VMAA, the MAAA chapter down here in Victoria. What led you to do that? Yeah. Are you a glutton for punishment or why did you get involved with the well, VMAA? I, yeah. So um, when I first started flying a long time ago, there was a couple of guys that I flew with that were on the VMAA committee. And by and by, I got involved with running nationals and did a lot of work there and um, through my involvement in, in the nationals and being in, involved and helping the VMAA, I, um, I joined the, um, the VMAA committee. That was, I think I'd, I started working on the VMAA back in 2002 and um, went all the way through. I, I held a lot of positions and um, did a lot of nationals. And then um, I became president and um, I finally gave it away uh, about six years ago now. Yeah, so you had, so, a, you um, had a pretty good. I actually there. gave it. Yeah, I, 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 um, um, I moved out of it to. I actually wanted to concentrate on um, going to the world champs. So, and I, I figured I'd put enough time into it. And um, you know, I think everyone has their their lifespan at doing something like that, and it's time to move on. So, which is what I did. So. Um, I got no regrets. It was um, great times, and I'm still involved with the guys quite a bit. Yeah, the um, back then, like you were involved for a long time. What are some of the changes that you've seen uh, in the hobby over that time period? Uh, I, I think um, the level of competition. Um, there's not as much. Um, people don't appreciate competition as much as they did back then. Um, we used to have uh, three, four hundred people that are at a nationals competition. Um, I think these days, you know, we're, we're lucky to get 150, uh, and that's across every discipline. I know in the helis, um, we have a lot of trouble just trying to get people involved. Um, and uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not too sure what it is. It's society. It's, it's, it's all sorts of things. And I think every single. Um, discipline is having trouble getting people involved. Yeah, yeah, I think it's 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 one of those things. I, I, I am a I'm a fan of competition because I think it, it raises the bar in the hobby uh, in general. That 
you know, competition uh, makes a lot of model manufacturers want to build better models. And so we all can benefit from some level of competition. And even at your local flying field, if there's, you know, the gun aerobatic guy that can mentor other people to become better pilots, because, you know, it's, it's one of the things that a lot of us enjoy doing is improving our own skills. And um, so I, I am a fan of it. And I think, I think one of the biggest challenges is the change in society that I think we're getting lazier in a kind of way. It's a, we've got so many choices and it's just, you know, people just don't want to make the effort for, for some reason. But I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think um, as time goes on, we're getting less and less juniors in into the, the sport, uh, which is making it more difficult. Um, I, I think it's... Um, I'm not sure, not sure what it is with juniors. Like we've got a few juniors around, and and they're really good. But I think you know, t- 10, 20 years ago, there was a lot more juniors, and I think the juniors got into it following their dads into it. But uh, I don't think there's that level um, there anymore. Yeah, I agree. I think that. Well, I've done a lot of thinking about the whole dilemma in the hobby and um, the lack of juniors, and the way that I view it is, yes, society has changed a lot, and the kids nowadays compared to what we were like when we were younger is we they've got more choice nowadays and it's the, it's the internet that's really spoilt things for everybody that you know my kids are currently on school holidays and trying to they can't think outside of anything that involves a screen uh and what i find is the people that are involved the young kids that are involved in the hobby they've got the mindset of an aero modeler. They're tinkerers. They like working with their hands. They they like investing the, the brain capacity to, to to learn new skills and that kind of thing. So the particular kind of thing, what's interesting is you mentioned this earlier, is and I always talk about this, is how you got into cars, right? And you race cars and things like that. I, I used to race cars and most aero modelers at some point in time have doubled with cars. And actually, when I talked to of some course. of the kids, you know, I was talking to some of the kids, um, oh, I can't remember where, it was one club and, and uh, I think it was out in sale and I was talking to this young kid and I said, how did you get into this? And he said, oh, my granddad got me into it. And I said, oh, what else do you like? He goes, oh, I really like cars. And I'm like, oh, there you go. You're <laughs> going to be an aero modeler for life. That's it. But yeah, it, it's one of those things. But I've changed my tune because everybody bangs on about getting youngsters into the hobby. And I actually think that an easier target is people that are like 55 years of age and up. Because I, I actually, my plan was that uh, radio control flying was going to be my retirement hobby. And I brought it forward about 25 years. and um, But I always had a passion for it when I was younger and that kind of thing. But it's such a good hobby for for people that are, you know, getting older, looking for something to do. Because I always say it keeps you mentally active, socially active, and physically active. Do you find that... Exactly. Do yeah. you find that after you've been, say, working out in the shed for a day on the plane, do you find... Do you feel physically tired? Um, oh, absolutely. Like... Go out, go out flying for a day, or um, you know, you, you come home and you're physically, mentally exhausted, and yeah, and and certainly like working in the shed, well, especially at the moment when you can't go out, but um, yeah, like you spend a half a half a day a day in the shed, um, building a plane or doing something or doing a bit of painting, um, yeah, you you're mentally drained. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm finding that uh, like this weekend, I'm hoping to get get into the garage, pull a plane out, do a few things, and by the time I get to dinner time, I'm my legs are aching. I don't know, I got bad knees, but uh, my legs are aching. Maybe I need to do more exercise. Or do I do exercise, but general level of fitness is quite good. I do more exercise than most. Not that it shows, Greg, but uh, but standing up all day definitely makes me tired. But 
this whole concept of what to do is something I've spoken to the MAAA a lot about. And it, it, the, the problem that aero modeling has today is it, it's the same problems being experienced by other areas, such as golf clubs, cricket clubs, football clubs, cycling clubs. It's everybody across the board. It's not just us that have the issue. The no. issue, the challenge that we have nowadays is that uh, parents are paranoid about where their kids are. You know, uh, back when I was a kid, I used to ride my bike around without a helmet on, build a jump, you know. My parents didn't worry about it. And now being a parent with young kids, it, it, I don't know, the fear of God's put into us or something. Uh, we can't let our kids out of our sight and let alone take them to a flying club and with all these unknown men hanging around. And so, yep. and back in the day, I remember you used to go to the local park and it was okay and you didn't think anything of it. Nowadays, it's like frowned upon and you can't do that and it's illegal to do it. You have to go to a flying club. Uh, were you involved in the purchase of some of the state fields? Like how did the whole Victorian state field thing begin? Um, well, it, it really began um, with Daryl Gunst a long time ago where he bought the um, uh, the field at Darrowit Gwim. And um, that was the first state field that was um, purchased by um, at the MAAA slash VMAA. Um, when I, I was involved in, um, um, to some extent, the one at Bensdale, not so much, um, but m more recently, the, the one at Mount Wallace yeah. um, I was involved in. Um, but the, the, real, the real good one was the one at Echuca. Yeah, and it's a great that site. Was, um, the, it's a terrific site. Um, the, the club um, leased, I think they leased it, off, off the farmer but the farmer needed to sell up so the club through the MAAA VMAA bought the block of land and then leased it back to the farmer it was a such a win-win situation yeah. and um, the Echuca club's done a ripper job to you know, put some good facilities up there um, it's not a, a huge site but it's um, it, it's it's a really good site and, yeah. and the VMAA has done a good job over the years to secure fields and, and whether you like where they are or not, um, they're secured fields that um, us as all members own. And, you know, it hopefully it'll be um, a bit of insurance in, in the future where other clubs are starting to be built out. I agree. I think that probably the best thing that the VMAA did was purchase all those all the properties you know and we've covered north south east and west really with flying fields now and i look 20 years down the track and a lot of these melbourne clubs will be built out they won't survive maybe packingham will because the place floods too often they own the land and uh what can they build on it <laughs> I've, i just joined packingham actually because uh you know i'm I, I, want a stable stable home where i can uh, go and fly and so i've joined packingham now and i'm planning to stay there a long time but besides that some of the you know doncaster club which is you know bred so many great champions how long has that got uh you know keelors under threat we've lost the marks club uh and so but uh, you know we've got melton and that's always teetering on the edge but even though we're going to have to drive a little bit at least we're going to some great venues i've been to i've been to all of them now and, and all of them yep. are great. Like, all of them are really good. Matt Wallace is going to be a really nice spot to fly once they sort of keep on developing the infrastructure around the field. But uh, I was up at Echuca probably oh, four, three or four weeks, weekends ago, actually, for a fly and a uh, good bunch of people. And 
undercover pit area, which is awesome now. So good on them. So yeah, and good facilities. Yeah, are there any of the other states uh, buying buying fields? I think Queensland or was it, you know, I think Queensland, or New South Wales are about to buy a, a block or something. But are the other states following um, Victoria's lead? Um, so uh, the simple answer is yes. Um, I think they're having more difficulties. Um, South Australia certainly they're out there looking. Um, I believe New South Wales just bought their second block, so they they've got their first one at Cootamundra. That's true. And I believe yeah. they've just got another one up in the Hunter somewhere. Yeah, I saw so, something. Um, some talk about that. Yeah. Let, yeah. Dur- so dur- go on. Yeah, no, that's all right. Um, during your time as VMWA president, what what was some of the what was the hardest? What's the hardest part about the the job? Uh, I I don't know that um, I don't know that there's a lot of hardness about it. I think you just got to be you got to be willing to listen to what people want, and, and certainly as a member of the VMWA, and then you get you represent the MAAA. Um, you you need to look at what all states are doing and work in the the common denominator of what's good um, for aero modelling that suits at a state level. And so whether, I, I wouldn't say it was, you know, the hardest thing. Um, there was always challenges um, to, to be had as to which direction you'd go or, um, you know, what you'd try and do. But like it, at all times you'd be putting the error modeler and what's good for error modeling in Australia. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, a lot of people, it's like politicians, really. Uh, everyone's always looking down upon politicians, and often committee members and presidents of associations are uh, in the same boat. And I, I've been involved in committees before and, and got hounded, but did a lot of good. And it was almost like you had the the peanut gallery observing what you were doing, waiting to pounce to have a go at you, but uh, they don't realise what goes on behind the scenes. And uh, I'm going to have... Uh, Joe Finicaro from the VMAA on as a guest uh, in the future and um, and uh, talk a bit more about the VMAA and what's going on and, and some of the behind-the-scenes stuff that he can uh, divulge with us. But, uh, you know, well done for, for having a good crack at it. Where to for you in the in the, you know, for, in the the hobby? Is it uh, now mainly focusing on the next uh, Scar World Champs for you? Um, yeah, certainly at the moment it's focusing on the next... Um, uh, next big scale event whenever that's going to come up and um, I'm ready to pack a model up and take it away um, what goes on after that I'm I'm looking at building another model I'm not sure what yet um, but I, I think um, I'll just keep going and I'll just see where it all takes me I've got no set plans and it could change at a moment but I'll, I'll see where the, the journey takes me and I'll I'll just do what feels natural at the time. Well, see, you're uh, you you uh, you're not working anymore, are you, Greg? You're, you're retired. I am. I am working full time. Are you? Yes. Gee, how do you fit this all in? I don't know. How can you fit in building model airplanes and the work and everything else that you need to do in life? Yeah, yeah. So, um, um, retirement's on the horizon, um, but right now, um. Um, with with the COVID, I'm I'm very very busy at work, and um, so yeah. Um, but I'm lucky I work from home, and I have done for 
um, 12 years. Yeah, uh, well, that's not too, too bad. Now, a final question. It's a question that I ask uh, all my guests, and that is what has been your favourite model? What's been my favourite model? Yeah, interesting. Although it's probably the Bristol, um, and by no way is it the best flying thing I've had. Um, it's a bit of a, it's it's a little bit of a challenge to fly, although it, it flies pretty well. But I think the the Bristol and what it's helped me achieve throughout um, the world, um, I, I think it's got to be my favourite. Yeah, makes a lot um, of sense. Yeah, um, certainly not the best flying thing around, and it's a bit of an ugly duckling. Um, but it, like that's probably me, and um, I do like flying, and I, I do like putting it out there and presenting it. Yeah, it, it, it's a it's it's a nice model, and it's in the air. Like it's um it's it's beautiful to watch flying around. What makes it difficult to fly? Oh, it's it, it's just a, a big sludgy trainer. It's got a big bucket nose on it. It's, um, you know, it's 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 not like flying a jet, which is nice and stable and pushes through the air. Um, need a lot of rudder. Um, ailerons don't work real well with it. So, um, but yeah, it, it like nothing wrong with it. Yeah, but as you said, it's it's where it's taken you. I think is the the whole story around it um, as well and the competition as well. Well, Greg, sure, yeah. you've been a great aero modeler and uh, you've, you've flown the flag for Australia. You've flown the flag for the VMAA and represented us uh, very well over many years. So a big thank you to all the effort that you've made for us and uh, good luck in the future with all your flying. Thanks, Hoops, Andrew. And now that I'm a member of Packenham, we can go flying together. Perfect. We can go flying together. Yeah, <laughs> we'll yeah. go. We'll go flying jets together. Yes, oh, in a, in a few months, possibly. <laughs> We've got to get over this yeah. current lockdown situation, and then uh, we'll be back into it when the weather warms up a bit. I think, hopefully. So, thanks for joining me, Greg. Perfect. No problems, Andrew. Thank you. A big thank you to Greg Lepp for joining me with that chat and always great to really learn more about the people behind the hobby. That's what I love about this uh, podcast is it's just getting to know the person a bit more and everyone's got a story to tell. And, you know, I invite some people to the podcast and, and people have declined, not many, but some people have declined. They, they say, well, I've got nothing to say. It's like everybody's got a story about how they got into the hobby, what they're doing in the hobby, what they're working on, their favorite planes, all that kind of stuff. And that's really a big focus for me because we can find out about kits and planes and you name it um, online all over the place but trying to really get behind the person is something that uh, I try to achieve with this podcast. Now today I want to have a bit of a chat with you about a question that I often get asked about I'm just going to share some of my experience and knowledge around servo selection for your aircraft uh, and I'll talk a lot about the larger size plane uh, than the smaller size planes because with the smaller size planes, we've pretty much got it covered. There's not as much choice really with the size of the servos. But when it can't get, when you start getting into bigger aircraft with a bit more flying in the air, with a value of you know, plane in the air, choosing the right servos is critical. So I'm just going to give you my rule of thumbs on, on what to select. And my rule of thumb is that 
you don't want to really skimp on servos. As my good friend Edo said to me, he said one day, Andrew, I don't understand why people skimp on servos and buy bad servos and put them in the plane. He said, when you think about it, the only thing that connects you to the plane is really the servo. That's what you feel is, you know, people, I think we're crazy when we say we can feel how the plane flies. But it's true because what we're doing is we're putting in an input and, and the plane is reacting. Now, if you put poor performing servos into your plane, what kind of reaction do you expect that plane to give you? No matter how good the airframe is, if you put poor servos into your plane, it ain't going to fly as well as it possibly could. So when you're looking at these giant scale aircraft and you're spending a bit of money, don't skimp on the servos. Now, what do I see as a mandatory item nowadays? Well, I look for a few things. First of all, at a high level, I look at a digital servo. Digital servo versus analog. Digital give you better performance, better centering characteristics. When you release the sticks, you want that control surface to go back to neutral. There's nothing worse than having a servo that does not center. And believe you me, I've had uh, some cheap servos in some little foamies, stuff like that, and they didn't center. I ended up swapping them out and putting better servos in because it ruined the whole flying experience. You're constantly chasing yourself because the servo can't find center. So digital servos will help you do that. I look for metal gear trains. Don't even worry about plastic gear trains in a large scale. When I'm talking about large scale, I'm talking about like 30cc gas or an up. Uh, so don't think about uh, anything but metal gears. Whether it's titanium or stainless steel, I look... It's up to you. Um, you know, the titanium is just a light coating. They don't make the whole gear often out of titanium. It's just most of the manufacturers put a coating of titanium over it. But if you want to go titanium and they have offer it, then go for it. Uh, what else do I look for? So digital is one. I look for a metal gear train. Then the other thing that I really start looking at now is whether it's two cell lipo compatible, like high voltage servos. Reason being is that we know that uh, those servos will give you more bang for your buck. They'll give you greater performance, greater speed, greater torque, uh, and it gives you greater options as far as what batteries to use. And I'm a big fan of using lipos because they're easy to charge, easy to know how much is left in them, and they give you, you know, the extra voltage that allows you to maximize the performance of the servo that you've purchased. The good thing is that most manufacturers now at that upper echelon uh, are offering high voltage servos. So there's something, the three sort of mandatory things that I'll look for. Then what I start to look for is the application. Now, if you're looking at an aerobatic plane, say versus a scale plane, one of the biggest differences when it comes to control surfaces is the size of the surface. A, an aerobatic aeroplane, a 3D plane, an extreme flight, a Compar for Krill, a Pilot RC, an AJ aircraft, uh, a Hangar 9, you know, one of those larger scale kind of planes, they've got really big control surfaces. So when you think about it, this control surface is moving up, it's hitting in the wind, the air, and and a force needs to be applied to hold that air back so that the plane can roll and go up, down, loop, whatever. So when you've got a big control surface, you need a bit more power in the servo than what you would need on a small control surface that you might see on a typical scale aircraft. Uh that the, the, the control surface is a bit smaller. So you want to match your servo to the application. Right? And so let's just talk about aerobatic aircraft for now, starting with, say, 30cc. So with a 30cc aircraft, I'm looking for a servo that will give me 12 kilograms to around 18 kilograms of torque. That's what I want uh, as a minimum. I'm not going 9, I'm not going 8, I'm going 7. Some manufacturers might say 9 kilos, but I'm saying minimum of 12. 
reason being is that um, I'd rather go overkill on the servo than underkill uh, on, on the servo. And because the thing that we don't want is flutter. I was talking to my mate Brad Wormster up in Echuca, the Wormster, Brad Worm, and he was telling me how he's on his one of his aircraft, his krill, uh, the, um, he got flutter in the elevators and it damaged the elevators and he managed to land the plane on one elevator now swap them out. Now, what he worked out was that his servos were a bit tired. They weren't running at their full torque. And it only dropped by maybe five kilos, a 34 kilo servo dropped by about five kilos and it wasn't enough to hold that elevator servo. It wasn't doing anything crazy. It was just going straight and level kind of thing and it started to get this flutter. So 12 to 18 kilos for a 30 cc, of course, digital metal gears, all that kind of stuff. Then if I move to the next category being that 50, 60 cc size uh, plane, I'm looking for 24 kilos as my benchmark. Around 24 kilos, I know that I'm going to be safe. I'm not going to have problems. Now, if I go to 120 cc, well, I'm looking at 34 kilo servos. That's my benchmark, a 34 kilo torque servo. When it comes to speed, flying aerobatics, speed is good. But often what you'll find with a servo is there's a trade-off between speed and torque. It really can you get both. If you get both, like a, a high torque mo, uh, servo uh, that is fast, you're paying a lot of money. So often there's a trade-off between speed and and torque. But generally we can find something that's pretty acceptable. So if you're getting something that's, I think, in a response time of, is it 0.12 or 0.012 or something like that? I can't remember the exact number. Uh, you're looking at something that's pretty fast. It's when you start getting in the, the 20s, 0.20 a second or point. O2O, I can't remember. Uh, you know, you're getting a bit too slow, and you want that fast responding servo in, in an aerobatic environment. In a scale environment where more subtle movements, not an issue. Definitely, you can, you know, go for the torque. You, you may need torque, um, but you don't need the speed. Now, on scale aircraft, those numbers that I gave you for aerobatic, you can, you can back it off a little bit. If you've got a, gr- a really important model that you love, don't skimp. Go back to the aerobatic settings. I always say that if you want to know what works in a model aircraft, go and have a look at large-scale aerobatic pilots and what they're building, how they're building their planes and what they're using. Reason being is they cost a bit of money and they don't want to lose them because they value that aircraft. And so they generally will not skimp on componentry. And they've proven, they've, through, through trial and error, through the aerobatic community, they've uh, worked out what works and what doesn't work. That's why there's companies like Powerbox with distribution boards and we use carbon props. Why? Because they perform better. So have a look at those aerobatic guys as far as the running gear to put in them. So servos, metal gears, make sure you match the torque and your speed can vary depending on your application. Aerobatic, you want fast. Scale applications, you don't need as fast. Now, the brands that I like are the ones that, uh, and I've tried I've tried a fair few. So I've tried JR High Tech. Uh, I've had a Futaba in a heli, I think. Uh, but JR... I've got JR, High Tech, Savox, Dual Sky, probably the four brands, dominant brands that I'm using. Throne Futaba, as well as a, as a quality brand, you're not going to go wrong with any of them. You know, uh, JR have got some great servos. They're pushing now the 12 volt battery, so not battery, 12 volt realm with their servos, which will uh, run the servos a bit cooler. Still some development work on that, what I call the supply chain, to make sure everything's 12 volt compatible. But JR, quite quality servos um, from our mate Richo up there in Queensland. You get them, uh, RC Depot Australia. Uh, we can get our high techs and our dual skies and our Spectrum. Spectrum servers are nice as well. You get them from uh, 
model flight. Um, most hobby stores can get those as well around the country. Uh, Savox are all over the place with different um, different retailers, but again, great quality at a, a reasonable price. I, I have been using Jewel Sky a lot, um, partly because I know the owner of Jewel Sky. I, I pay full price for my uh, my servers. I'm not getting any freebies out of my mate in Jewel Sky, but I've seen the factory environment. I've, I understand his ethos and what he's trying to do, and and I was willing to give him a go, and they've been great. So I've, I've got I've had them in a in a few aircraft now. But high tech, I've been a big, big fan of for many years. Uh, when I was selling model aircraft through 3D Hobby Shop Australia, sold a lot of high tech servos and still have many running. Those quality brands are the ones that you want to look for. Now, at the current state of play in Australia, is our exchange rate's terrible against the US dollar. And so everything's costing us a fair bit of money. Um, so if you make the choice to build a decent um, model, make sure that you budget for buying decent servos as well. Do your research. Uh, but all I can say is, again, just don't skimp. Don't go and buy rubbish. If it's cheap, it's cheap for a reason. Uh, people just don't believe that, but it's been proven time and time again. A $100 servo costs $100 because there's a lot of work that goes into it. They might have you know, uh, brushless motors or cordless motors, whatever they are. They, you know, So the technology is better, and you've got actually, there's a lot of work that goes into making a servo. So don't skimp. Yes, they do cost a bit, but... It's all about your flying experience. As my great man Edo Segev said, he would always say, why would you skimp? Because if you, it's all about fun. Why would you want to make the experience worse for you by putting in a rubbishy, uh, a rubbishy servo? So stick to the key brands, match your torque, match your speed, and everything will be okay. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode done and dusted for the Flat Out RC podcast. Thanks for joining me once again. Big thank you to Greg Lepp. Really appreciate him spending some time on the line. Uh, don't forget, subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends. Let's keep on growing it. Um, down here in Australia, we don't have a lot of media outlets left. Uh, there's not much at all. And we're still trying to wave the flag. If you want to sponsor us, get on send me a message get onto the flat out rc uh web page www.flatoutrc.com.au and send me a message and then we'll have a chat but uh jump on board to the flat out rc movement and don't forget to tell your friends now what else i want to tell you uh plenty more coming um i've got interviews banked up uh working on some big names as well international names people that you would have heard of uh, because we want to hear their story as I said earlier love hearing about people's stories so a big thank you to all of you once again for listening don't forget if you're in Victoria enjoy your lockdown we'll delve deeper in next week's episode about that with our special guest but uh, put your masks on and let's see if we can get over this coronavirus so that we can all get back to normal back to flying as we want to so thanks again for joining me on the Flat Out RC podcast. Oh, 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 oh,